Welcome to The Lead, the New Lines Magazine podcast. I'm Faisal Yafai, and this is the podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. The Hamas attacks of October 7th marked the beginning of the bloodiest chapter in the Israel-Palestine conflict for years. More than a thousand civilians, both Israeli and foreign nationals, were killed in the attacks. And since Israel began its retaliatory campaign in Gaza last month, it has killed around 12,000 Palestinian civilians. With anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and anti-Palestinian racism intensifying across the globe, the war has become inseparable from past traumas from almost all participants, who vow to do whatever it takes to prevent the horrors of the 20th century, for Israelis the Holocaust and for the Palestinians the Nakba, from happening again, no matter the cost. I'm joined today by Arwa Damon, a former senior international correspondent for CNN and the founder and president of Inara, a nonprofit which provides medical support for children affected by conflict. Her two recent pieces in New Lines magazine, As Gaza Braces for a Ground Invasion, The Circle of Violence Continues, and The Gaza War is Traumatizing a Whole Generation on Both Sides, explore how the deep pains inflicted by war persist and compound generation to generation, hardening tensions and allowing the violence to perpetuate indefinitely. The trauma of this, like the traumas of the past, she writes, I fear will also end up embedded in the DNA of generations to come. Arwa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Although you tackle it from quite different angles in these pieces, fundamentally, I think both are really concerned with trauma as both a consequence and a cause of violence. Why do you think it's so important to talk about that right now? Because in the 20 years of my covering war, from the human perspective, from the on the ground experience of it, from the way that it just so deeply, to a certain degree, irreversibly alters a person's life and the way that they think, to covering it from the political perspective and embedding with the military, I really came to this you know, realization and understanding that at the core of almost every single decision that is made, whether it's by an individual or by a government or by a soldier, is emotion. Mm. Human emotion drives every single thing that we do. And I have seen over the course of 20 years doing this. But even before that, you know, I grew up very cross-cultural. My mother's Syrian, my father's American. I bounced around as a child between Morocco and Turkey. I had a, a very different um, growing up learning experience in, in doing that. And I think because of that, I also developed to a certain degree an ability and a thirst and curiosity to listen to others and it's in listening to other stories that you also realize, again, how deeply uh, emotion drives where they are at any given point in time in their life. And to negate emotional history when looking back at how we arrived at certain events in our human collective history, it's a huge disservice because it just means that we never fully grasp or understand what it is that is bringing us to all of these horribly violent intersections. And in losing that understanding, we basically forfeit the ability to be able to ever change anything. Mm. I mean, you talk about this, the, the importance of understanding emotional history in one of the essays. You say, I quote, 
Uh, I believe that part of understanding the why in which we find ourselves at a certain juncture does not just include the decisions and events that propel us there, but also the emotions that drove those decisions and events. Tell me more about that. When you're looking at what is going on in Gaza right now, how do you think emotions lead us to where we are today? On a very sort of basic fundamental level, if we just look at the initial emotions that rose to the surface, October 7th, Hamas launches a horrific, despicable attack across the border, murdering, butchering. The initial emotion to that is obviously, understandably, shock, horror. And then the secondary emotion, especially for those who were directly impacted, or for those who know someone who is impacted, is bloodthirst revenge. And then we see that coming to play with the immediate decision by the Israeli government. Their first decision was not to start a bombing campaign. The very first decision was to shut Gaza off. It's 2.3 million citizens off from food, fuel, water, medicine, humanitarian assistance, electricity. That was a very gut-driven, anger-driven reaction. Mm. And then on the flip side of it, you have the horror of the butchery that we're seeing on the ground in Gaza with bombs pounding civilian areas into the dust with very little, if any, regard for the lives that that are lost in every single strike that takes place. And that also is understandably leading to this visceral reaction of how could this be happening? Doesn't anybody care? And no matter how you look at it, specifically to the case of Israel and Palestine and, you know, Israel and, and Gaza right now. Yeah. Emotions that are being generated, they're so primal. Mm. Yeah. But you can see the, the, the reason why those emotions would come to the surface. When the attacks are so horrific and, and so vivid, you can imagine that even the politicians have to kind of respond to that wave of emotion. Everyone needs to respond to the wave of emotion because every single person witnessing all of this is having an emotional reaction. We are inherently emotional creatures. But how do those emotions then impact the decision-making process? And whether that's the decision-making process from, let's call them your your average person who's scrolling through their Instagram feed and spinning vitriol towards one side or the other, or it's the emotional response and the journalist themselves that needs to a certain degree rein it in and try to think rationally about what is happening to a certain degree, which is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do to the politicians, to the military uh, commanders who are trying to figure out how to respond to all of this. And it is fully understandable. And there is also this conflation, though, where when we are in a position where we're trying to explain things, there's this belief out there that somehow explaining and understanding means justifying. Right, right. It's also a huge disservice. And I do believe that we need to take some key moments into consideration. The Holocaust, and even as I say the Holocaust, my hair stands on end, is one of the most horrific things that 
humans have done to each other. And so that trauma has been passed down through generations among the Jewish community. And for them, October 7th is not just an isolated horrific incident because it comes after generations of trauma being passed down from grandparents to parents to children. For the Palestinians, 1948, the Nakba, the sheer madness of being driven from your home, hundreds of thousands told that they can never come back, living as forever refugees within their own country or in neighboring countries, now all of a sudden being bombed to pieces and told that they need to leave home again. And when that trauma is not dealt with over generations, it hardens. And unless it's actually dealt with and confronted, we will not be able to break cycles of violence because we don't have a real understanding of the trauma and the emotional history of what is leading us to a certain point in time. I mean, I think you could really see this conflict as one that, as you say, has been driven from the start by trauma. I wonder, though, if sometimes we like to look at it like that because it makes it easier to accept the cruelties and atrocities in a way. Like they're easier to make sense of if you think of them as acts of pain rather than as acts of politics. That's assuming that we're separating the two and we're separating a political trajectory from a trajectory of pain, whereas I would argue that the two are actually embedded with each other because, again, the political decisions are also driven by emotion and by a certain set of beliefs that one you know grows up with is exposed to or a trauma that has been handed down to them from previous generations i don't think we should be separating the two but do you think there's a i mean how do you think that feeds into the decision making i mean the politicians are able to make different decisions even if they feel the weight of their own or the society's trauma but very few actually are if you if you really think about it and if you look at sort of key decisions that have been made, and if we just go back to sort of, you know, the war scenario, look at the United States post 9-11. The decision to go barreling into Afghanistan and then barreling into Iraq was one that was pretty much made on pure revenge. Mm. That was very emotionally driven. If we look at the way that the Western media reacted post 9-11, it was very much um, a campaign of dehumanizing, you know, Afghans and then Iraqis and then Arabs and then all Muslims that was driven by fear. Fear, again, an emotion is one of the biggest drivers that allows the military machine and the politicians that are behind a military machine to justify what it is that their military machine is doing. Mm. No government, no army can convince people en masse that what it is doing is justified unless it has somehow succeeded in dehumanizing the other. And the best way to dehumanize the other is to create fear of the other and then convince the population that you're trying to bring on board that they should fear the other and that the other is also less than, that they are somehow humans on this planet that do not love, live, feel or hurt like you. 
Mm. I want to ask one more thing about the the politics of trauma, because in a way, you say this in your piece, that we also need to understand how those emotions have been historically manipulated, twisted, and how from the start, the failings of the key power brokers have led to where we are today. And I thought that was a very insightful point, because it, it made me think about there's a perverse incentive structure that actually creates uh, incentives for leaders in conflicts like this to continue to create pain, because if pain is your route to political power, then you actively benefit by cultivating more pain. Exactly. And that's, I mean, this is how we see societies divided. Mm. It's pain and fear. I mean, look again, if we look at, say, for example, Iraq or Syria, but let's just focus on Iraq where, you know, we saw this crazy butchering that was happening between its Sunni and Shia population. And when you would go into these neighborhoods, you know, that were traditionally mixed, when you would talk to Iraqis, they were completely baffled by this. Like they couldn't understand how neighbors turned on each other or family members were even slaughtering each other. I mean, how does a person's brain break like that, that their moral compass is completely tossed out and they forget that this person is, you know, their neighbor and their relative and not necessarily something to be feared. And we see so many examples of how fear and pain are constantly manipulated over and over again. And another point to make in all of this also is that that fear, it also conditions us to a certain degree to be incapable of properly listening to another person if what they're saying even remotely makes us uncomfortable and forces us to challenge our beliefs. Because our brain is conditioned to protect us from discomfort and to protect us from all of these elements that are out there. And so you see these barriers that are coming up. You see people growing even more polarized because they don't want to have a conversation that is potentially going to make them uncomfortable and challenge their beliefs or at the very least prevent them from being open to another person's perspective or another person's narrative. Mm. The last question before we leave this particular part of the conversation, but do you think that there is a way, maybe not now, but in the future, that if some of what you have talked about, the understanding of trauma is better understood by people in positions of power, that the, I mean, other conflicts, but let's talk about this particular one, that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict could come to different conclusions, that politicians could make different decisions. The experts would say that yes, absolutely, but it would require a level of emotional maturity that quite frankly, I mean, doesn't really exist right now. And I think that's the saddest part of it. Mm. Let's talk a bit about the, the current Gaza war. I mean, you've reported on the conflict there for years. Having seen so many years and rounds of this violence, I guess it must make it even more painful to watch now because of the the intensity of the loss and the suffering uh, inside of Gaza. Do you, I get the impression from your piece that you think that this current war is different, that the trauma of it for both sides is so much more intense that it might change the way the societies react. This, this, this is different. I mean, this is like nothing I've ever seen in 20 years of covering war. Mm. I've, I've never seen this level of, and in saying that I'm not negating what Hamas did, but I've never seen this level of relentless, intense 
systematic bombardment of a civilian population. I've never seen a situation where a democratically elected nation state cuts off all humanitarian aid from a civilian population. I've never seen the sort of images that we're seeing coming out of Gaza right now, where the entire world is watching hospitals running out of fuel to be able to run and operate. Not when one party to the conflict is, again, a democratically elected nation state. Sure, maybe we saw similar scenes coming out of Syria, but Bashar al-Assad is the dictator. It's a very different scenario, what we're seeing right now. And I think that is really what you know makes it that much more painful, especially for the Palestinian population, is they know that their death is being broadcast and that in theory it could be stopped. And again, I'm not at all negating what you know Hamas did and when I saw the images coming out, I mean, I was having, you know, mental flashbacks to similar images that I've seen, you know, post uh, some ISIS or extremist attacks that, you know, I saw yeah. in, in Syria and Iraq with the bloody handprints on the walls. I mean, I, I, it was reminiscent, it was reminiscent of that, you know, horribly reminiscent, but, you know, again, you, you have this gut reaction to what you're seeing, but then you, you know, it, it's, it's a pause and eventually it's, Okay, but we can't allow the similarity in certain images to allow for statements that are saying, you know, ISIS is Hamas, because when we say ISIS is Hamas or Hamas is ISIS, that is not correct. And the differences need to be understood so that the problem can be properly um, tackled. It's just... Yeah, I mean, I'm 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 like a lot of people watching this. I I think you know whether you know reporting on it or trying to respond to it in the humanitarian space, where it's just it's stunning and it's terrifying, and it does feel as if you know we're we're sitting here watching the train of humanity just go careening off the tracks, tumbling into some dark abyss from which we're not going to be able to come back. Some of that emotion, though, I wanted to make this point earlier. Actually, is that it has actually provided us with some positive outcomes. I mean, you see the enormous outpouring, the demonstrations of people all across the world. I mean, vast, vast millions of people taking the streets again and again, week in and week out. That is also motivated by emotion, but in a positive way. Yes, yes, no, it is. And we didn't see that, you know, during any of the previous um, conflicts that erupted any of the previous bombardments of Gaza. We, we didn't see this level of support. And I think, you know, part of that is also as, as divided of an opinion as I do have over social media, but social media is allowing a Western audience to see and feel the Palestinian narrative in ways that are not controlled by the Western media. Because before social media came to be, and before you know Instagram and TikTok and whatever completely exploded in the in the video sense, Western press and the, the visuals and the, the reporting that the Western media put out there was really the only window into the Palestinian narrative that a Western audience had, and that has proven to be changing. And look, you know, Palestinians who I talk to, yes, they're in an enormous amount of pain right now, and they can't believe what's happening, but they do also have this sense that. You know, maybe, maybe when the dust finally settles from all of this, something will actually finally change to push towards a more, 
you know, long-term <laughs> durable, you know, solution to this nightmare that they've been living for decades right now. But when I hear that, I just find it so sad and so disappointing that humanity needs to reach a point like this to be able to do the right thing and make the right decisions. I mean, there's something fundamentally wrong with it. Yeah, that even the people are saying, well, when these deaths are concluded, when so many people have been killed, then finally the world will understand, which seems extraordinary. I mean, how many deaths does it take before you, the world needs to understand? It's, bad. it's crazy. It's actually, it's, it, it defies any sort of logic. I, you mentioned the media, so I think let's turn to that for the moment. Um, the media responses, I mean, the American media, the Western media has received a lot of criticism for taking the, the Israeli perspective, the framing in the way that it's approached the war, both prior to and in the wake of the Hamas attacks. Do you, do you feel that that criticism is fair, first of all? I do. But I need to preface all of this by saying that in my entire career at CNN, I was never once censored by the network. And when I reported on this particular conflict, um, I was always reporting from inside Gaza, or when I wasn't able to get in Gaza, I was still reporting on Gaza. Mm. And that's, by the way, that's something that, of course, other senior journalists have also pointed out, that they, they, they haven't been directly censored. But I wonder how you explain the, the framing then, the, the framing that favors one side in that sense. And that's the interesting part of it is, you also have to realize that when someone like me is on the ground in a conflict like this, my window is actually, to a certain degree, quite narrow in the sense that I'm living and breathing what's happening in front of me and around me. And then I'm going, I'm putting my report together. I'm giving the report to the network. And then I'm doing a couple of broadcasts around it. And then I'm going to bed and I'm waking up the next day and I'm doing the same thing. Mm. So I don't necessarily have sort of the window to sit back and watch, you know, one or two hours of full coverage. And now that I do have that window and that ability is when I'm truly beginning to appreciate the choice in phrasing and the way that other anchors, other commentators, other reporters choose their words and choose how they're putting things, whether it's deliberate or whether it's because there is a certain level of self-censoring happening, I don't know, but there is definitely something in the way that the Western media has historically and continues to present the story of the Palestinians. And I think, you know, a lot of it, it is, it is the politics of it. You know, mm. there's, but, and again, this is something that I genuinely don't understand because I do know what it's like, for example, to go into a battle space with a military. And when you go into the battle space with the military, you're obviously inundated with a military perspective. You're inundated with the military talking points and you're effectively seeing what they want you to see. But there's always a way to add nuance to that. I was watching a report by um, a, Western, uh, a Western outlet and, and their correspondent was on the ground in Gaza with, with the IDF. And he was talking about the smell of dead bodies and then flipped straight into like something else completely afterwards. And I'm st sitting there and I'm watching this and I'm thinking to myself, hang on though, you can add in two more sentences 
and talk about the smell of dead bodies and not knowing who they were and mass graves being filled with women and children and, and men who had nothing to do with any of this. Or when we keep seeing, you know, the press that's in Israel talking about the rockets coming in and, you know, pointing to the Iron Dome and the intercepts. And that's very valid. That's a very valid thing to do. But it also is incumbent on the journalists there, especially knowing that they have no counterpart inside Gaza itself, to point out that Gazans don't have that same alarm system. But I want to ask yeah. you one more thing about this, because when you say that you're not sure why it is that that framing persists, I mean, that framing persists across the almost the entirety of the Western media, with some exceptions, but in general. I mean, you I say, do well, know why. Yeah, let me ask, ask the question that you say, well, I'm not sure why that is. But if you are not sure after 16 years at the absolute apex of the Western media, I mean, who is sure? How, how much information does it require to be sure where the framing comes from? No, I mean, when I say I'm not sure, I mean, I'm not sure in the sense that have there been directives that have been handed on within the network that I'm not aware of in my little correspondent space? How much of this is maybe something that is being said to a journalist before they're going in to cover the story? Um that wasn't ever said to me hmm. in that sense. Do I know where the perspective comes from? Of course, look, it's a Western network. It's going to present the Western perspective of things, hmm. but I don't believe that that allows the journalist to abdicate responsibility, to try to understand and insert what is happening in the story, even if they aren't able to fully access it. But the journalist knows the journalist knows what their bosses want. Yeah, I mean, yes, yes, maybe, but that's where it goes down into self-censorship. Like, is there a culture of inadvertently self-censoring? Because you know if you say something, you might get into trouble. And look, maybe I never cared and I just said things <laughs> because I never cared if I was going to lose my job or not. Right. Because I knew what was happening in front of me. I knew what I was seeing. And my philosophy has always been, if things get complicated or if there's too much mixed up and conflicting and contradictory information, you boil it down to what's in front of you. Mm. And if what's in front of you is a dying child or a child who is not able to access medical care that they need or a civilian family that has been crushed under rubble, that is a fact that is undeniable that is in front of you. And that is what you then focus the story on, because we also need to be fully cognizant. And the entire press corps knows this. We are getting played by every single side at all times. Post 9-11 taught us that when everybody lapped up America's call to war, especially the call to war in Iraq. Mm. And we have seen multiple examples of that throughout the course of the last 20 years. Governments will either deliberately lie or mislead us or use very clever rhetoric that they repeat over and over and over again until whatever it is that they claim somehow becomes something that is parroted over and over again. And mm. that's not just the West, by the way. Everybody does this. Well, no, I mean, it's, it's definitely not the West, but the West is meant to be held to a higher moral standard and the, you know, the democracy and the free press. Democracy is meant to be held to a higher moral standard. So what happens when 
a democracy starts breaking away from that higher moral standard. It gives room for others to do exactly the same. Mm. And we're seeing it right now again, because, you know, Netanyahu's justification for X, Y, and Z is, well, the U.S. post 9-11 didn't or did, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting how much there is a fundamental imbalance between the ability of journalists, even you know, with major networks behind them, to gather information and what the governments can say, because the governments can just say stuff and everybody has to accept what they say. There was a, I was, I kind of, it's not really funny, but I was laughing that um, after one of the attacks, the Americans said, well, we've got the, the information has come to us uh, from a trusted source. And you're, yeah, the trusted source is the, the people doing the bombing. And this kind of yeah. circularity in, in the sourcing and then the justification is why you end up, I think, with the wars, not just these wars, I mean, the other wars you've covered, like in Iraq. And that's the problem is we don't, the Western media doesn't question what Western officials say strongly enough. There's no pushback to it. You know, a soldier can say whatever they want and all of a sudden it becomes a headline. Logic says that, no, that is not necessarily a reliable source unless they have witnessed what they're claiming themselves. And especially if we're talking about the context of Palestine and Israel, you know, there needs to be more evidence of it because this is in so many ways, not just a physical war. I mean, this is a war of disinformation, misinformation, manipulation, the scale of which has surpassed post 9-11. And I never thought I would see that. Actually, this is something I wanted to ask you about with the disinformation, because it has been a real flashpoint in the Gaza conflict, even by the standards of the 21st century warfare, and, and I'm including Syria and Ukraine in that. This one stands out as a conflict where the facts have been so murky and doubt has been so rife, even among experts. And many researchers on this have said that the sheer volume of misinformation, as well as its reach, is unprecedented. So how do you think you report on that? when every incident is accompanied by a sustained barrage of disinformation, sometimes official, sometimes on social media, which is meant to twist it in a particular direction. It goes back to what I was saying earlier, where you bring it down to something that is undeniable. It is undeniable, an undeniable truth right now that there are babies who should be in incubators who are not in incubators because the hospital ran out of fuel. It is undeniable right now that there are only three surgeons at Al-Ahli Hospital that is the only functioning hospital in the north who are having to triage as opposed to actually treat these catastrophic war injuries. And then it goes into the blame game. Whose fault is it? Well, the Israelis say it's, you know, Hamas because they're hiding in the civilian population and Israel is dropping the bombs and trying to justify what it's doing. And, you know, Palestinians are blaming Israel for, for dropping the bombs. And it's really hard to avoid getting sucked into that. But if we were to, in theory, let's just look at the impact of this on the civilian. And instead of saying, okay, whose fault is it? Let's try to frame our reporting in terms of what do we do to stop it? Because when we, especially in a conflict like this, spin ourselves around trying to assign blame, but also trying to sort of build this argument of, you know, my pain is worse than yours. And therefore it is okay for me to do 
X, Y, or Z to you, or my fear is greater than yours. And therefore what I am doing is justified. We're just drowning in, in this vitriol and, and putrid space. Do you feel after so many years reporting that sometimes the politics takes precedence, even in terms of the framing over, I mean, just the human emotion of people being killed and kidnapped and so on? I mean, that's sort of, you know, been my crusade since I started being a reporter Mm. is to try to move it away from the politics and the political rhetoric and the military rhetoric, because the rhetoric that we use around war is extraordinarily dehumanizing. And that is also a way that politicians and governments and militaries try to manipulate, you know, an audience's psyche, collateral or, you know, pinpoint strikes or even even a word like the displaced. Yeah, the displaced. It's, it's, yeah, like it's an act it's of totally God. They just happen to be on the move. Yeah, yeah I mean, you know, so it's, you know, 1.6 million guys displaced. It makes it sound as if they just, you know, lost their way. And that word in and of itself doesn't encapsulate. I mean, you left home, you left everything you know to be familiar, to go somewhere else where you're still not able to get that ball of fear that is in your very essence out and not knowing what it means to be able to go back home or having that taken away from you and having everything that you knew to be real and normal and and taken for granted. It's just, it's gone. Hmm. I mean, I do think one of the things that I enjoyed watching your interviews and your writing over this particular period, I think, is that you do write and speak very movingly about what the reality is like. And I think people can take it uh, much more seriously because they know how much time you spend on the ground in some of these places. I actually want to go back briefly to some of your own experiences because you've just step back from this, I mean, this extraordinary period of your life, 16 years, I think, covering wars and ISIS and the siege of Mosul and these sorts of things. 20 years, actually. 20 It was 16 at CNN, but yes, I started in 2003 in Iraq. I wonder if that has given you, now that you you step back briefly from that and you have a little bit of perspective on it, I wonder if that has given you some perspective on, A, why we do these things as journalists, but then also sort of what it all means. So start with start with why we do these things. Do you have a sense of what drove you through those 16 to 20 years? I do, and obviously it changed over time. I mean, I was I was driven into, you know, journalism because I am Syrian American and 9/11 had happened and the anti-Arab rhetoric was just out of control. And I remember thinking to myself, but but how can one side of me be talking about another side of me like this? Mm. I need to go and become a journalist and try to explain, you know, people to each other. And at that point, it was this very clear division between, you know, Americans and Arabs, you know, West versus East kind of thing. Yeah. And that was certainly what drove me into it. And this sort of naive idealism of thinking that, you know, well, maybe I can help people understand each other. That didn't quite work out. Um, but then I think it was, I was probably in 2020 and I don't remember, I was going back into Idlib province again in Syria and I had been there multiple times and it was always a variation of the story of, you know, Assad's forces and the Russians were just bombing Idlib to bits and 
hospitals were getting attacked and people were on the move again. And that beautiful word, the displaced, the number of internally displaced was just growing and tent cities were becoming you know, hardened, firmer structures that were getting a greater air of permanence around them. And I was asking myself, I was like, why do I keep going back? Because none of the reporting made a difference in Syria, actually. All those lives that were lost, all the activists that were killed trying to get the images out, you know, mm -hmm. the Western journalists who were killed, the local journalists who were killed, the people who were killed. I mean, all the reporting on Syria did not really stop it from, you know, veering off this, this path of worst case scenario that we could all actually see. And then I realized that I wasn't doing journalism anymore because I fundamentally thought that it would make a difference, although I still believe that on some stories it can. But it was more because that history still needed to get written and recorded and those stories still needed to be told. And how much do you think your own background contributed to that? Because I, I was very interested when you said, you know, these two sides of your your own background were kind of at odds with each other. And that was something that our own colleague, Mesa Mustafa, who's Palestinian-American, uh, wrote about very recently for us, where she talks about being her own, this wonderful phrase, being her own occupier, which is a very, <laughs> I know, it's a very interesting way of phrasing it. And I wonder how you felt covering a lot of what were America's wars. I mean, I, I think for her, this experience must be so much more intense than mine was. Um, but so my dad's American, my mom's Syrian. I was born in the States, but then I left America when I was six and we grew up in Morocco and Turkey. So I was very much what they call a third country kid, hmm. sort of this person who I never belonged anywhere. I was always the foreigner. I always existed on the fringes. And then eventually as I kind of matured a little bit, um, came to realize that, you know, I am most comfortable actually in that space where, where you don't fully belong. And when America went to war, especially the war in Iraq, because at that point, and I think in the psyche of so many, it shifted from being a war on terrorism to, oh, America's actually waging war on Muslims and Arabs. And I had a lot of conversations with my American friends, and they had their, you know, very narrow perspective, but when they would talk to me, and maybe it is because, you know, I look like, you know, the blonde, green-eyed American girl next door, and I obviously have an American accent. Mm. When I spoke to them about, you know, the other, this big, scary other that was out there, it didn't seem so scary anymore because it was me who was talking to them. Yeah. And, yeah, and and then that just kept repeating itself, you know, over and over and over again. And it, it to a certain degree, it's still what I do. Because that also, it goes both ways. You know, Arabs ask me about Americans and why Americans think and act um, a certain way. And, you know, Westerners ask me about, you know, the, the other side of it. And yeah, I mean, I think my upbringing just really gave me this curiosity, but also this ability to listen and appreciate how different and intricate, you know, all of our stories are and how nothing is monochrome. We have this tendency to want things to be very black and white. We want our heroes and we want our villains and we want things in 15 second clips. And that's just not us. That's just not the experience of being human. I was talking to the, the journalist Tara Kangarlu, and she reminded me of a line that the long-term foreign correspondent Fergal Keane wrote, which I want to read. 
He wrote, like many foreign correspondents I know, I have lived a life that on occasion has veered close to the edge, war zones, natural disasters, darkness in all its shapes and forms. In a world of insecurity and ambition and ego, it's easy to be drawn in, to take chances with our lives, to believe that what we do and what people say about us is reason enough to gamble with death. Do you, that, that was written in the late 1990s before the rise of social media, it must be um, you know, much more the case now. Do you recognize some of that perhaps in your own motivations or in the motivations of people that you've known uh, in terms of people who have been on the ground as foreign correspondents? I mean, for some, yes, you know, you, you'll hear some correspondents, you know, talk about the adrenaline rush and, you know, this and that. And yeah, of course, you're always, you're, you're brushing with death on so many occasions. I mean, my poor mother, it's just, I mean, all, all of our mothers have just had, our parents have had one hell of a time. Um, and for me in particular, I mean, do I get scared going into these situations? Yes, absolutely. Um, and I, I, I do believe that one needs to have, um, a reasonable level of fear, but one that is not overwhelming. And I don't believe that we should be called fearless or that we should think of ourselves as being fearless because the minute you're in that mindset, then you stop respecting the danger. You need to have fear because you need to respect the danger of the situation that you're in. What really kept me going back though, I have to say is it's not, it's not the bullets and the bombs. It's actually these moments that usually happen when, you know, the camera's not rolling. And it's when I tend to wish that I was working in print and not in television. Mm. It's just these moments that happen on kind of the sidelines of everything. And it's these moments where you realize that even in the darkest depths of what you're experiencing, there is this simple beauty that is also the human experience. And it's in the family that is, you know, in Aleppo and has been living underground for six months because they're too afraid of the bombs to go above ground and they have nothing left to eat or drink. And they've made you their last batch of tea because ultimately you're their guest and their dignity is all that they have left. And they want you to know that you're their guest and that you're still welcome in that space. Or it's, you know, it's, it's in the matriarch of a family who, when we were under siege uh, by ISIS in Mosul, treated me like, like her daughter um, and cared for me during all of that and laughed with me about why I wasn't married. Um, or, you know, the families who I saw once I left a war zone or got out of a firefight and I would go back to see them and they would talk about how worried they were about me. And all I'm thinking in my head is, are you crazy? Because I left and I went back to my really comfortable life and you're here and you were left behind. And how kind are you? Yeah. How good of a are you to, to think and act like this? And that's really it. I mean, I've made so many deep, intense emotional connections that when I really circle back, like cycle back on, on all of my sort of freeze frame moments and memories, there's not a bullet or a bomb in them. There's always someone's face or someone's emotion. This takes me back to the question that I wanted to ask the second part of it, which is You've sacrificed so much of your your time, your energy, your mental health. I think luckily you haven't been physically harmed, but you've given up a lot to tell these stories. And as we see now, just in Gaza, we see people are giving up their lives to tell the story from there. Is it your feeling that these stories do add up to something different, to some change? I guess I'm really asking, what is the benefit of bearing witness? It's hugely beneficial. I mean, I, 
for example, talking about what's happening right now, I mean, if the Western media or if non-Gaza based media was able to actually get into Gaza and feel the Palestinian experience in Gaza right now, I think an entirely different reality would emerge. It is very important for us to be able to, you know, go in there and really feel the pain and the sorrow and the anguish and these little human moments that I'm talking about to be able to properly report a story. Because ultimately, what are we doing as journalists? We are taking, in most cases, another human being's most intense, horrific experience, them trusting us with that story, and we're trying to condense it in TV, for example, into a two and a half or three minute report. And that's very hard to do when you're not physically there yourself. As for what keeps a person doing it, so I think there's a strange breed of people out there, um, and that includes, you know, us in the media, um, doctors, for example, who volunteer and go into war zones. I mean, anyone who voluntarily puts their life in danger. And I think most of the world probably thinks that we're completely and totally insane, and probably wonders why we don't leave. Never mind why we put ourselves in that situation in the first place. And for me, and I think for a lot of people who I know, and um, Dr. Hassan Abu Sitta right now, he's uh, one of my charity's founding board members, and he's been in Gaza since day two. And he's not leaving. And I get it because his thinking is the same as mine. He wouldn't be able to live with himself if he did. Arwa Damon, thank you very much. You're welcome. This has been The Lead from New Lines magazine. You can find Arwa Damon on Twitter at I am Arwa Damon. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Faisal Yafar. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favourite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com. 